CCD part two, crazy Christian disorder. Last week we talked about the three uh, primary symptoms of crazy Christian disorder. We talked about complaining, which is what we looked at last week, criticizing, which is what we'll look at this week, and doubting, which is what we'll look at as we finish this up in two weeks. But I thought I'd start today by asking a, a question. Here's a it's a real question. I'm not going anywhere until we get an answer to it. So it may be a very short sermon. What's the big deal about sin? Let's talk about for a Christian in, in particular. So, Jesus died for your sin. You place your faith in Jesus. You're forgiven for all sin, past, present, and future. I'm being theologically spot on with that. Okay? So what's the big deal about sin? If a lightning bolt hits me, you know that's the wrong question to ask, but I'll trust that it won't. Sin negatively impacts the intimacy of our relationship with God. But so what, right? I mean, why not just enjoy, put your faith in Jesus, enjoy the heck out of this life, go crazy like, like everybody else, and then when you die, you get to go to heaven. Your sins are all forgiven, and everything's great in heaven. So, what's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that approach? Is sin really a big deal? Now, I found, I asked this question to a lot of people. I tried this week, and I get a lot of looks. And I think part of the problem is because a lot of us haven't really thought about that. How many people do you know that, that grew up in a church... They went off to college. Kids, ears, stick them in the, in the ears. They don't even listen. <laughs> they go off to college, and let's just say they live no differently than everybody else. Right? They, they, they grew up, they, they at some point professed faith in Christ. They, they really loved Jesus. They went off to college. They had a grand college experience. And maybe at some point down the road, they started going back to church and, and recompartmentalized it. Or maybe they never have, but they'll identify as a Christian. And then we're sitting there and like, well, oh, you're not supposed to do that. And we're like, they're having more. Is sin really a big deal? It is. It's a huge deal. First and foremost, sin is what separate, separated us from God for all of eternity as non-Christians. Jesus came to die to pay the price for our sins. But even as Christians, sin is still a huge deal. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want you to understand first and foremost, Jesus didn't come to be a role model. A lot of people think Jesus is a good teacher. He came to be a, a role model for how we should live our lives. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the price for our sin, that it separated us from God. Now, yes, we do have a, a role model per se, and we'll talk about that. But I want to explain to you today the incredibly dangerous aspect of sin as it comes to the life of a believer. Before we do that, I'm going to pray so that God might open our ears to hear what, what's from him and um, protect our ears from, from the nonsense that might come from the gibberish of my head. But Father God, I pray today that as we go into Numbers 12, that we would have ears to hear your word, that we would come to see you more clearly for who you are, to see ourselves more clearly for who we are, and understand the inexpressible joy of a relationship with Christ and the incredible breadth and depth of your love for us is shown through Christ on the cross and how you care for us and desire to give us abundant life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Today we're talking about criticizing. Anybody here, well, let me define it before I ask the question. Let's take criticism in a negative aspect as a, a sinful behavior. Dwelling upon the perceived faults of another with no view for their good. Dwelling upon the perceived faults of another with no view for their good. Who's good at criticizing? You guys are awesome, man. Let's switch seats. Who's, who's, last week we had like, it was just Flo and I were the complainers. And no one else has a problem with complaining. No one criticizes but me. I had the only hand this week. So bear with me. I need help. Pray for me while I preach to myself. Who's good at criticizing? Who's good at pointing out the faults of another person with no interest in their good? Well, there is constructive criticism. There is. Sometimes we, sometimes we mask sinful criticism under the auspices of constructive. You're really ugly. I'm just telling you because I love you and I want you to know you're ugly. Right? That, that's not constructive criticism. Nor is it, and here's a bag to wear so people don't see you ugly. How good are you at receiving unjust criticism? How good are you at being the one someone says, you're ugly? How often do you receive that well? Aren't we all pretty good at criticizing by nature? Maybe not out loud. Maybe it's just in our heads. You know, maybe you're driving down the highway and someone's not driving the right way and you feel a need to point out, at least in your head, what a jerk they are for having the nerve to drive like... But you're not looking out for their good. You just want to criticize. Maybe you have family members after you spend some time with them, you know, and you're, you're driving home. This wouldn't be me. You're driving home from a visit, and you just have a list you want to go through with the person in your passenger seat. Can you believe? Oh, my word. We are not going back there for years and years. And years. What a... I've heard about this. As a passenger, I've listened to this sometimes. It wouldn't be me. We're great addition it. We're horrible at receiving it. And today we're going to talk about criticism. We're going to talk about what is so bad about it what we're called to do in the face of it, and why God uh, reveals that to us. We're going to be in Numbers 12. Last week we were in Numbers 11, and if you remember, I'm going to try to find the book of Numbers, if you remember last week we had the quail incident. Remember the Israelites were out in the wilderness, and we want meat. We missed the food of Egypt. It was delicious, the leeks and the onions and the, the delicacies we had. And all we got is this manna, 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 manna. Give us meat to eat. And God says, you want meat to eat? I'll give you meat to eat. Not for a day, not for a week, for a whole month you can have meat to eat. Didn't work out so well, did it? The anger of the Lord uh, came down on the people. There were people destroyed. The many who lived, well, I guess all who lived, were sickened by the quail, and it was a horrible experience. We talked about the problem with complaining and the destructiveness of it. Well, wouldn't you know, shortly thereafter, these Israelites, they learned so well. Shortly thereafter, they, they moved on. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazarot, and they remained at Hazarot. That's where we finished last week. Then we get to Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke out against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And to Aaron and Miriam, sorry. And suddenly the Lord said to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. 
And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazarot and camped in the wilderness of Paran. You can read that and have no idea what's going on, just words can pass through your head. Or you can slow down a minute. And you can look at what's going on. The first thing on your little bulletin insert will say, proud people. I thought we were talking about criticism, weren't we? Look at what happens here. Miriam and Aaron, we'll talk about them in a minute. They spoke out against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married. Now here's where God points out that sometimes we're slow to hear. Spoke out against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. So you don't miss it. What's the problem with Moses marrying a Cushite woman? I'll give you a hint. You don't have to know Hebrew to know the problem with marrying a Cushite woman. You certainly don't have to go to seminary to know the problem with marrying a Cushite woman. In fact, it's quite easy to know what's the problem with marrying a Cushite woman. Anyone have an idea? Followed other gods? Followed other gods? was in Hebrew. You ready? This, I'm going to give you the deep, the deep answer. This answer is so deep, I want you to put it on your life preserver so you don't get sucked down with it, okay? There's nothing wrong with it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. If you flip back to, see this is where I'm hoping I have my reference, to Exodus, I believe it's in chapter 34. If not, I'm just going to make it up and you all can find it. When God's speaking to Moses, he says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He goes on in verse 16 to explain that they should not take their daughters to marry their sons or give their sons to their daughters to marry. Right? The Amorites, the Canaanites the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, but I don't hear Cushites. There's nothing wrong with marrying a Cushite. At all. So what the heck is the problem with Miriam and Aaron? Why are they giving Moses a hard time for marrying a Cushite? Well, I think as we keep reading, we find out. And then they said to him, so first, that we don't like that broad you married. She's a Cushite. What's wrong with you, Moses? Why are you marrying a Cushite? And then, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? 
Has he not spoken through us also? Whoa. What's the Cushite have to do with how God's speaking through who? Do they have anything in common? You ever have people criticize you? Like, you're ugly, and, and, your feet are smelly. Things have nothing in common sometimes in criticism. Horrible illustration there, but guess, you know what I mean. Had God spoken to Moses in a unique way, or were Miriam and, and Aaron right? Had God only spoken through Moses in this way, or had he spoken through other people and used other people the same way? Well, God points out real clearly, in verse 7, 8, and on, no, Moses and I, we, we, we talk in a unique way. Not in riddles. We talk face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, he's saying. This is a, a special prophet you have in your midst. So Miriam and Aaron, um, God shows up on the scene, and he's saying, y'all have a problem on your hands. There's nothing wrong with Moses taking a Cushite wife. And yes, in fact, I have only spoken through Moses in this way. So you know why Miriam and Aaron were criticizing Moses. The common root is pride. There were glory hounds. Anybody here a glory hound? Everybody's hand stayed down. Mine goes up. Oh, thank you, Flo. We all want the glory. Isn't that the problem? Isn't that the, the problem we had before we came to faith in Christ? Isn't that the problem the world who doesn't believe in, in God has? They're saying, God, listen, you are not God. I'm God. I make the rules. Who do you think you are to say what's right and wrong, God? I determine what's right and wrong. And they want to have a battle with God. Because they want the glory that God should receive. You understand that? You know, judges and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I think we have that going on around us today out there. But don't tell anybody, because it's intolerant and you might upset somebody. When everyone wants to do what's right in their own eyes, that's pride speaking. But the truth is that, that even today, as Christians... We're proud people. What happens to us is what happened to Miriam and Aaron. Who were they? Aaron, high priest. This isn't some average Joe hanging out in the wilderness. You know, Aaron's just doing what what the million Israelites do out there day by day, and all of a sudden he shows up and he's giving Moses heart. This is his brother and sister. His brother is the high priest. The guy had been before Pharaoh. Remember Moses' mouthpiece? He had that staff. He, he, he was used powerfully by God. A couple problems along the way, you know, with, a, with that calf thing and the Ten Commandments story. And, but Aaron was a, was a high, he was the high priest. He was a mature man in his faith. Miriam, remember Moses in the basket in the bulrushes? Remember who put him in the basket and put a basket in the bulrushes? Miriam. Remember who got it so Moses' mom could nurse him? Miriam. You know who really loved Moses that we know from that? Miriam. Go back in Exodus and you can read Miriam's psalm of praise as the Israelites came out of Egypt. Miriam was a mature woman in her faith. And here's what I think happened. I think Miriam didn't like the Cushite woman because someone was treading on her glory ground. Someone had the potential to take away some of what she wanted. I think Aaron had a problem with Moses being spoken to in a unique way because he was the high priest and why should he not be recognized for how awesome he was and all the stuff he could do and what God had used him for. He wanted praise heaped upon him. And what happened was without realizing what they were like in their flesh, little by little, sin crept in and hooked its claws into pride. Genesis 4, you know the story of Genesis Genesis 4. You know the story of Cain and Abel? Cain killed his brother Abel. 
God said to Cain before that, they, they had brought offerings. Abel brought an appropriate offering. Cain, not so much. God says to Cain in Genesis 4, Sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to master you, but you must master it. That applies to us today, even as Christians. Sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to master you, but you must master it. The problem before Christ was we couldn't do anything to master it. We were slaves to it. But because of Christ, through faith in Christ, we're freed from captivity to sin, and through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, we have the strength to master sin. But often we forget that something's crouching at our door until it's too late and it's hooked its claws so deeply into us it is incredibly painful to get it out and it has left a trail of destruction behind us. Miriam and Aaron didn't just wake up one day, oh, let's go complain and criticize Moses. It was little by little. You know in their heads it crept in. Miriam's probably seeing how this Cushite woman's being treated. Why is she? Why are people speaking so highly of her? Why do people like her so much? Why is Moses spending so much time with her? What happened to the good old days when me and Moses were close? Why don't people recognize me for what I do? I'm an important person. I'm Miriam. Little by little. And all of a sudden, she just lashed out in criticism, false criticism against Moses. And Aaron's involved, too. And then Moses is being spoken to in a unique way, and they're sitting there going, why does God speak to him in a unique way? What's wrong with me? I'm a big-time person, too. I'm the high priest. I get to go before God in a unique way. God's spoken to me and through me. Why is Moses getting all the glory? And before you know it, boom! They're out there criticizing Moses. This is most likely in public for people to hear. And it's a bad thing. How often do we do that? Not just with other people, but how often do... Do we criticize other people in an attempt to make ourselves feel better about ourselves? Maybe again, it's just me. Maybe you're all going to leave here like, wow, he's crazy. But I suspect, I suspect if you slow down enough and think about why you criticize other people, it's so that you can feel a little better about yourself. You hang out with some people with crazy kids, right? And you have kids of your own. And I mean, they just, their kids are whack. They're out of control. The parents... You know, they're like handing them money. If you will please be quiet, I'll give you $50 if you go sit down on that chair. Here's another 50 if you... I mean, real bad parenting. And then you're like, oh my gosh, talking to your spouse. Do you see what horrible parents they are? Can you believe what, what, what ridiculous things they do? I just, I thank God so much that we're not like them. I mean, we're awesome parents. Look at what a great job we do. We must be the best parents in the whole world. We often criticize others because we want to feel better about ourselves. Remember, I'm talking about the unjust criticism where you don't have interest in their good. You're really trying to elevate yourself. But how often do we criticize God because we want the glory that God rightfully has? How often do we fail to walk in obedience with God because we don't want Him coming in and taking some of the glory that we want for ourselves? How often do we seek to win the approval of men as opposed to God. Paul says, if I seek to win the approval of man, I'm not a servant of Christ. How often do we do that? You see, here's what we need to remember in the proud people area. Sin is crouching at our doors, and we are proud people by nature. We want to, in the flesh, we want to feel better about ourselves. We want to think we're the center of the universe, and people should bow down and worship us, and everyone should want to be around us, and everybody should adore us, and everyone should tell us how wonderful we are, and if they don't, we have an inherent obligation to knock them down a rung on the ladder so they know how awesome we are. And we need to be very careful because 
if we don't pay attention, it creeps and creeps and creeps, and we begin to seek glory that belongs to God and sit in a position that's really God's. Now, you wouldn't articulate it that way. You wouldn't get up in the morning and say, God, today I'm going to say, screw you. Today I'm going to decide what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. And if you don't like it, I really don't care. And you can just forgive me. I know what you say, but I know better. But here's a list of things I would like you to do for me today while I'm out enjoying myself. Fix this, do this, give me this, and then if you can make this happen in the near future, that'd be great. Now go do that. And then you go about your day. Could you imagine praying like that to God? But often do our actions act like that? Think about the pride that lies behind that type of attitude. And that doesn't just happen, it creeps little by little. So here's what I want you to get. No matter how mature you are in your faith, Miriam and Aaron, they're pretty mature in their faith. You never outmature a prideful spirit that, that resides within you. Where we're freed from captivity to sin, we're being healed from sin, but we live in the effects of a sinful world in a flesh filled, sin filled body. Okay? Its effects are all encompassing and all consuming. We need to be very careful with it. There's a reason Paul tells us to don the full armor of God. If you don't know what the full armor of God is, look it up. Look it up in your concordance. Spend some time reading about what it is. It doesn't take very long. You could even go back online. I think there was a sermon about the full armor of God. Paul says, don it. We often say, no thank you. I will guarantee you it will not go well if you are not daily donning the full armor of God. It may look like it's going well for a while, but you'll notice a complaining attitude and a criticizing attitude creep in. And next time we meet, I'll show you how the doubting attitude creeps in. And then you sit there and say, why does God seem so distant? Why does this life of uh, walking with Christ seem to stink so much? Why do the people that don't believe in Jesus seem to love everything that's going on in me? I'm just a miserable wretch. Love you, Jesus. This stinks. I hope heaven's better than this. That's not what this is supposed to be. But when we don't walk in daily obedience, that's what we get. Don the full armor of God. God says, store up your word in your heart so you might not sin against me. Well, God, you don't know how busy my schedule is. I don't have time to read the Bible. Certainly memorize, and I can't memorize Scripture. Meditate, I can't even take two seconds to think. Listen, I want you to give me patience. I don't want to work for patience. If you don't do it God's way, it will never work. God tells us not to neglect the practice of meeting together regularly. How many, how many independent Christian churches do you know? I mean the type that stay at home by themselves as a, you know, where two or more gather in my name, there, there I am. Well, see, honey, we're a church at home. Turn the TV on to whatever channel has a preacher goal. Turn it off and it's church. Give it a shot. I did it for a while. It doesn't work so well. And little by little, you'll see this joylessness associated with your relationship with God. And you'll get to the point of thinking, what is this relationship with God thing? I don't even you know. He's real, but how do, you, how do you have any idea of what it means to live in a relationship with a being that you can't hear from, that you don't have any joy in, and you frankly don't really know? And then you become a complainer a criticizer, a doubter, and then you are just coasting. Nothing's happening. We need to be careful to pay attention to what creeps at our, crouches at our door. Because if we don't, there is a lack of intimacy with God. There is a lack of effectiveness in being used by God, and there's a lack of true joy. Do you think that God is, is today saying, gracious sakes, I would love to see people in the United States of America come to faith, but I just can't do it. Oh my goodness, I'd really like to see people in Chester County start to come to faith, and I'd like to open their eyes to the truth, but it's just too hard for me. I wish I could do it. I'll work over here in, in uh, 
in the Muslim world because it's a much easier crowd where people get killed for believing in me. They seem to want to come to me in droves. But, but America's too hard. Do you, do you think that's what's going on? Or is there perhaps something where God's saying, Ambassadors, hello! Those indwelt by the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, I have decreed to make my plea to the world through you, primarily. Go out into the world and make disciples. And we say, no, God, you don't understand. I know that's what you say, but you can do it another way, so make it happen. Is it just possible that God might mean what he says? And that when those of us who believe in Jesus go out into the world, and it comes across like this. I would like to tell you you should believe in Jesus. It's awesome. You get to go to heaven and have joy like this, and it's just cool. You want to come to church? And they don't come, and we're like, well, God isn't working today. How about if we little by little walk in daily obedience, and a joy comes out of us, a supernatural joy, because we actually are living in a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. And we don't let pride get in the way because we notice something is crouching at our door. Now watch the problem with the solution. Moses, it says in verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. When's the last time you were at a playground and heard one kid say to another, My daddy is much meeker than your daddy. You ever hear that one? I've heard, my daddy could beat up your daddy. We saw in Funniest Home Videos this one girl who said, my dad has a golden tooth, and the other one says, well, my dad has diabetes. <laughs> but I've never heard somebody say, my daddy is meeker than your daddy. Who here wants to be known as meek? Who wants to like, oh, there's Kent. Kent is the meekest guy I've ever met in my life. You, you often, you're really not craving meekness, are you? When you leave a family gathering, you want to say, oh... What a meek little person that is. The, the meekness, just that's the meekest person I've ever met. We're not craving meekness, are we? Jesus says, blessed are the meek for something should happen to them. I don't remember, something about inheriting the earth. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, meek, same word. Meekness is what we're called to, humility. Have you noticed the world does not applaud and praise meekness? We like, we like proud people, and we like proud people that screw up. Watch, watch the news. Look at the magazine covers when you're online in the grocery store. Have you, as an aside, noticed how raunchy those have gotten? Like with my kids, I feel like they need to wear blinders through the aisles. The, the trash out there. Anyway, let me just vent a little bit. I feel better. Not complaining or criticizing. Maybe I was. The world loves proud people and we love to knock them down because then we feel better about ourselves. Now we, we don't want to vocalize that, but look at the TV shows that come on. You take a celebrity, Tom Cruise. We, we build him up like he's, he's some sort of demigod out there. Tom Cruise, rich and famous. And I don't know why people find him good looking. I think, but anyway, he is ugly. I'm, no, I'm kidding. And we build him up. And then, and now he's getting divorced for the third time, and what a loser! And we're like, yeah, yeah, man, he made all this money, he's famous, but he's a loser, and I'm much better than him. We love to, proud people, knock him down so we can feel better about it. When's the last time you saw a humble person, a humble person on a magazine cover being celebrated? This is Tim. Tim is a plumber in Topeka. He has a very small business. No one knows much about him, but he's a faithful plumber, and he loves the Lord. 
We don't want that, do we? Well, the world doesn't celebrate it. But you know who does? God. Do you want the praises of man, or, or do you want God to be pleased with you? That's a question we all have to answer. Now, I'm not saying that meek people can't be well-known and do amazing things. Moses, Moses is famous. I don't know if you know this or not, but Moses is famous. Moses led millions of people through the wilderness. Boom, God parted a sea through him. He, he is the greatest prophet apart from another we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, another humble prophet. Humility, meekness actually requires strength that's superhuman. You understand that? The world won't celebrate it, but it's what we're called to. There was, as I just said, a, another prophet. A prophet greater than Moses. And in pride, people rebelled against this prophet. People complained. People criticized him. And if I remember correctly, this prophet ended up nailed to a cross. That's Jesus. What's the humility of Jesus look like? Was Jesus? Um, would you think of Jesus as a meek person? I think in some of the contemporary art we see, we get a, a I don't know what the right word is, not a very manly man of Jesus. I don't think Jesus walked around with chewing tobacco and you know built up like in the kids' Bibles. I am Jesus and I will crush you. Remember those guys, Hans and Franz from back in? The... But Jesus was a man's man. This is a powerful, strong, courageous man who also was God. And in Philippians, if you go to Philippians 2, it says, have this in mind, I'm in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And John in John 15 tells us that a servant is no greater than his master. Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus humbled himself by coming down from heaven to dwell among us, prideful, rebellious, complaining, criticizing sinners who were spitting in the face of God, telling God we wish he were dead, prodigal son right there, right? Telling God we wish he was dead, we wish he would leave us alone, but he loved us so much that he humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. Anything that died on a cross, on a tree, in Jewish heritage was cursed. Right? That takes some humility. And then he tells us to follow him. Well, here's the problem we have. Here's the, the biggest problem that struck me. We kind of like being proud and we don't really want to give it up. We, we like what the world offers us in pride. We want to be in charge. We don't want to be known as meek. We want people to say of us, you are an awesome person. I wish I could be more like you. We like to, we like to raise kids to be self-confident. You can't be self-confident and be meek. I don't think the Bible says, I can do all things all by itself. I think it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We're supposed to raise kids to be God-dependent. We're supposed to be God-dependent person. You know those self-help books? There's a reason they don't work. You can't fix yourself. Jesus had to die so that you could be given a new, a new flesh. The old is gone, the new has come. Because it wasn't 
unfixable. You had to be born anew. You needed a new heart. Self-help books aren't so effective. Self-discipline doesn't work so well. We, we need to work in, in tandem with other people, primarily with God. You know what 1 Corinthians 1.27 says? I'll give you the paraphrase. You can flip there if you like. It says that God uses what the world considers foolish to shame the wise. He uses what the world considers weak to shame the strong. He takes meek people and does amazing things. He takes meek people and creates a level of intimacy between him and them that transcends our ability to fully comprehend. God is looking for meek people to use powerfully for his glory. Notice how Moses responded when the criticism came. What are you doing marrying that Cushite? And you think God speaks only through you? If I was Moses, because I am not the meekest man on the face of the earth, I would say, excuse me? You talking to me? Why, why did I do what? And then I would drag Miriam and Aaron out in front of everybody and I would just shame them, unabashedly shame them under the auspices of constructive criticism. Look at these fools. They don't know what they're talking about. They're ignorant. They're liars. And we should mock them all together and make them feel badly about themselves. And you can't come hang out with me anymore. That's, that's how we are in our pride. But you know what Moses does? Look what he says to Miriam and Aaron. Uh, he doesn't say anything, does he? God jumps in and says something. God says, paraphrasing, uh, Miriam, Aaron, you better check yourself, because we're going to talk. And he comes down upon them in a cloud. And it ends with him telling them, you are some prideful fools. We just had this problem with the quail and the, and the complainers, and, and you quick as they are going criticizing you're going to question what I choose to do and say that I should be doing it differently. You know who you're talking to? I'm a big God. And sin is a big deal in my eyes. This is my, my servant Moses, and I do speak to him in a unique way, and there ain't nothing wrong with him marrying a Cushite woman, and you should worry about that log in your own eye as opposed to the speck in his. In fact, I think I'll talk about that when I come and dwell among you in human form. And he gives Miriam leprosy. That's not like a little spiritual timeout. That's not like, Miriam, you go sit on the steps over by the tabernacle for seven days and think about what you've done. He gave her leprosy and she was cast out from the congregation. She was removed from God's presence for all intents and purposes. That's a big deal. Hell is an eternity separated from God. The worst thing about hell isn't what it looks like. The worst thing about hell is what it is. An eternity separated from God. How could God let anyone go to hell? How could God force a person who wants nothing to do with him in this world to spend eternity with him? Now that's cruel, isn't it? You wanted nothing to do with me in this life. You wanted to be nowhere around me. You didn't want me interacting with you. You wanted me to leave you be. I'm telling you that's not going to go well. And he pursues you. But if that's what you want, wouldn't it be cruel of him to force you to spend eternity with him? The worst thing about hell is being separated from God. And Miriam, for seven days, experienced separation from God because of her criticism rooted in pride, and that's a big deal. Now, let me be very clear as I wrap this up. The last thing is we the people. We're saved by grace through faith and not by works. That could be no more clear in Scripture. Our behavior does not make us more acceptable to God. So technically, and make sure you're paying attention to this part, because if you miss one little spot of this, you're in trouble. And I guess I am too if I don't make this clear. 
as a Christian, if you are a real life, breathing, regenerate person, you can do whatever you want. Because you're saved by grace through faith and not by works. God will, if you're a Christian, you can go around and smack small children. You may get hit by me if you do that, but you are no more acceptable to God by your actions. However, let me qualify that. If you really are a Christian, you're not going to want to walk around smacking kids for the rest of your life. You're not going to want to walk around being complaining and critical and prideful the rest of your life. Because the fruit of the Spirit, which dwells in us as Christians, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit, and it's an inevitable consequence of coming to faith and being born anew. Now, I'll give you this, I'll give you this disclaimer and chew on it. There is a possibility for any one of us that we may know a lot of facts about Jesus and think we believe in Jesus, but not really believe in Jesus. And that's something you're going to have to ask God to get into your heart in. And what I'm saying is, if you can go to, if you can grow up in a church and you go off to college and live like everybody else, and you come out of college and you live like everybody else, and you don't really give a rip about the things of God, I'd be cautious about identifying yourself as a Christian. Because if there's no fruit, there might be a problem. But we all know in our hearts, because you can't judge a person just by the fruit. We all know in our hearts better what's going on. I can't look at a person and by their actions say, there's a Christian or there's not a Christian. I can make, and you can make, a valid assumption, which we're called to do. Read John's epistles. But what I'm saying is, each and every one of us needs to be sure that we truly love Jesus and follow Jesus. How do you do that? It's not that difficult. You understand who you are apart from Christ, what He has done for you, and you fall before God and say, God, I recognize the fact that I am a sinner separated from you. And it's not just by my actions, it's by my whole nature. And that there's nothing I can do to be right before you, but I accept the gift you've given us through Christ. It's really not complicated. And little by little, David, there's not always this, whoo, moment, and you like glow, and you look in the mirror, and you're like, this is freaky, I have a glowy face. And if you have a glowy face, and you speak in tongues, you're a Christian. If that doesn't happen, you might, no. Sometimes it doesn't even feel very different at all. But little by little, day by day, month by month, year by year, you start to see things change. You care about sin. You care about the things of God. You desire for other people to come to God. You start to get glimpses of the joy that God offers. You begin to have a greater eternal perspective. You actually look forward to an eternity in God's presence. And little by little, you notice. It's not that hard. But if you don't have that, you want to stop and you want to think, God, do I really understand who you are? Who I am and why you came? That's the first thing we need to do. We need to remember who Jesus is and why he came. The second thing we need to do is we need to be diligent and aware. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to get in. I'll be honest with you. Doesn't life get busy and it gets hard to walk in obedience to God in the practical steps of, of spiritual disciplines? I, I, you, you guys know. It's been years of me doing this. You guys know that we're supposed to read this book. You know that we're supposed to meditate on God's word, memorize his word, store it up in our heart. You know this. I know this. Aren't there times that we just get busy and it's hard to do it? Right? I know that, that raising my kids, I'm supposed to go Deuteronomy style and talk about God when, they, when we rise up, when they sit down, when we walk about. I'm supposed to make the, most of, the best opportunity of each moment. But there are times I don't do it. There are times I get caught up in my busyness. There are times when, I hate to say it, 
people around me could be a nuisance and they intrude upon what I want to do. And little by little, time goes by and then you look back and you start to think, shoo, I'm halfway done with one of them. How many missed opportunities? Some of you guys are more than halfway done and some of you are flat done. But it doesn't mean that we're supposed to look back with regret. We're supposed to look ahead to what lies ahead. We've got to be diligent. We have to be diligent and aware. Sin is creeping. We need to, we need to make time. We need to be countercultural. We need to be weird. We're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Now, my greatest desire for each and every one of you and for myself is to have a level of intimacy with God that is unimaginably close. That, that is my greatest desire, is for you to know God as clearly as you can, to walk in obedience with Him so that you can have the abundant life that He desires for you to have. That's what I want for me too. And through that, we glorify Him and we see Him work through us in other people. But, and here's the big but, God puts some responsibility on us. He says, you need to make daily choices about what you will do with what I entrust you. We have eyes to see now, but do we use them to see what He wants us to see? We have ears to hear, but do we listen to what He wants to say to us? And do we take those steps of strengthening, or are we stuck on milk? You know that, that when Paul talks about, though you should be eating meat, you're drinking milk. I heard someone talking about that. And I realized I had Americanized that for a long time. I envisioned a kid sitting at a table drinking a glass of milk. Right? When they should be eating something more substantial. Homogenized milk apparently didn't exist like it did back then. Do you know what type of milk every child drank? The mother's milk. Start to picture an adolescent nursing at their mother. That ain't right, is it? Start to picture a, a young adult nursing at their mother. You're supposed to be up and about, getting your own food together like a grown person here, and feeding yourself so you can feed others. you got your own kids now, right? How often do we get stuck in that rut? by missed opportunities, by pride creeping in and not maturing in our faith the way we should. We need to start today to be more diligent about what's creeping at our door as we remember what Jesus did for us. We need to ask God to change our heart because you can't do it on your own. Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Here's what I want to challenge you, I challenge myself with. I'm not giving you a moral checklist of things you should do. I'm not saying, here's what you need to do. Don't complain and don't criticize. Because you've got to put the why on the back end of that. Why not? I'm telling you this because I want all of us to walk in obedience to God so we can have the life He desires for us. Because if we taste and see, we will find that the Lord is good. And we're blessed to take refuge in Him. Blessed means content, happy, joyful. A life of obedience to God is one choice. A life of obedience to the ways of the world is another. The choice is ours. Even as Christians, the choice is still ours. What do you want to do? Do you want to build yourself up? Or do you want to allow God to decrease us, like John the Baptist says, so he might increase? I can only speak for myself. I think there are probably too many times in my life, still to this day, where I've allowed pride to creep in, such that I have stagnated what God has desired to do in and through me, and I have created uh, interference between us as far as the level of intimacy He desires to have with me. 
Now, I've gotten better over the years, but there's still work to be done. What I want to have is that level of intimacy so that God can speak to me and He can speak to you in a unique way through His Word so we might behold the wondrous things of His Word like He says we can. So that we can understand the power that dwells within us, the same power that created the heavens and the earth dwells in us. And that's not just an intellectual concept to check off on a test. It's something we experience day by day that helps us to conquer sin and walk in obedience and to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we begin to live for eternity and not for today because this is over like that. We need to be a people of no regrets because we have a God who came to take upon our sins upon himself so that we wouldn't have to be a people of regrets. Last week, complaining. This week, criticizing. In two weeks, doubting. Pride's a wicked beast. It dwells in each and every one of us. We need to decide what will we do with it. Will we tolerate just a little bit of it? Or will we fall before God and say, get it out. Get it out, God, for your glory. And so that I could have the intimacy with you that you desire and that you made a way for me to have. Let's pray. Father, I pray, I pray that you would plant a seed from your word in each and every one of our hearts. And that while that seed was being planted, you would do some weeding. That you would remove those weeds of sin that... that probably permeate the soil of our hearts, some that have sprouted and some that are still underground. I pray that you would make us aware of areas in our lives where we are uh, dealing with sin and that you would strengthen and empower us to get it out. Not because in so doing we're acceptable to you, but because in so doing we begin to experience the joy that you desire us to have and the life that you've made a way for us to have. That we could understand that eternal life doesn't begin at the moment of death, but at the moment of salvation. God, help us to, to know you as more than a concept, as a, as a group of facts, but as a being who is real and present among us and loves us and desires to care for us perfectly and will in fact do just that. Help us see you work in amazing ways in our lives and through our lives. Give us a joy that, that doesn't come naturally. Give us a peace that transcends all understanding. Give us the strength to do the hard work you call us to at times. The path is narrow and it's bumpy. But that's where you call us to be because that's the way of life. And on that path you walk beside us. And you hold us up. And you use those bumps to strengthen us. Help us not run from the bumps or try to avoid the bumps, to, but rather to smile and rejoice in the bumps. Because you use those trials to strengthen our faith to grow us closer to you and to prepare us for an eternity in your presence. God, I confess my pride to you. I confess the fact that I struggle daily with pride, even in ways I don't recognize. But I pray you would give me the eyes to see it, and I pray the same for all of us. Father, in a moment we're going to take communion as a church family. And I pray that as we do, we might spend some time reflecting upon the humility that made this supper available to us. The humility that you had to give your body and to pour out your blood for the forgiveness of sins so that you can restore a right relationship between us and you. God, that is just unfathomable how much you love us that at the cost of the life of your very own son you made a way for all people who would believe to come before you. 
I pray, God, that would become more real to us day by day. And that would happen in part as we faithfully participate in what you call us to. God, I just praise you. I glorify you. And I pray that with, for all of us, with all of our lives, that would be our focus. And that we would find that we were not made to be praise receivers, but praise givers. And through doing so and through glorifying you, we would come to find that you would glorify us. Thank you, God, so much for who you are, what you have done, and what you have made us as believers in Christ and children of yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'll invite you to come forward. There's one qualification to come forward. This table is for those who believe in Christ. That's a requirement. If you love Jesus, please come forward and participate with us. Let's spend some time reflecting on the humility of Christ and and what he calls us to, what he gave up, and what he gave to us in giving that up. And as we do, and after we finish and the music closes, I'll end our time with a benediction. So I invite you to come forward.